Well, this past Monday, I watched a video presentation that one of you guys sent me by a guy who has kind of made it his life's mission, I think, to figure out exactly what it is that the Magi, the wise men of old, saw in the sky when they were way off in Babylon, and that's his theory, and I agree with that theory, and then followed all the way from Babylon six or seven hundred miles, initially to Jerusalem, but then ultimately to Bethlehem and to the feet of Christ. What was it? I mean, was it actually a star? Was it a planet? What exactly is this thing that they saw that was so magnificent that they saddled up the camels, man, and took off? What was it? The coolest part of the whole presentation was the uh, computer model that they've come up with. You know, one of the things, I don't know if you know this, about our universe is that our universe is utterly predictable. It moves with absolute mathematical precision. And two centuries or so ago, we figured out the math of the universe, but we didn't have computers then. Well, now we do. And so the deal is they have cr- created a computer model where you can come to the model and give the given year or month or week or even a given day and then give it a vantage point, in this case, Babylon, and it will show you not what the sky sort of looked like, not what the sky might have looked like. It will show you exactly what the sky looked like. Very, very cool. So this guy has this theory about what year Christ is born in, and he gives all this historical information, and so he makes his case for that, and he plugs that into the computer model, and then, of course, he agrees with me, and I agree with him, that they probably viewed the sky from Babylon, so they plug that into the model, and then he says, now watch this, because I'm going to show you what the sky looked like, and there actually was some kind of a weird thing happening in the sky. It was neat. What was happening at that time was that the planet Jupiter, which is the largest planet in our solar system, is also the king planet, was coming into perfect alignment with the planet Venus, which is the mother planet in our solar system, and also the brightest planet, to form what to the naked eye looked like, at least according to this guy, the biggest, brightest star that the naked eye has ever seen. I thought that was kind of interesting. No, I think it's totally wrong. But... No, I do. I mean, I I appreciate his presentation, and it's cool, and it's kind of interesting, and it held my attention for an hour, which is almost impossible, okay? And then I shut it off. But I don't think he's right, and I'll tell you why. Because when you go into this passage of Scripture that we're going to go into today, and you read about the star, I'm going to put it in quotes because I don't think it was a star. I think it just kind of looked like a star. It was a thing in the sky, and they went, ah, what do we call it? We'll go with star. When you read about this star, it does not behave in any way, shape, or form like any kind of a celestial body, be that an actual star, be that a planet, or even two planets that, you know, kind of, I mean, coincidentally, perhaps, come together at just the right angle so so as to appear like the biggest, brightest star that human beings have ever seen. It doesn't behave like that at all. Think about it with me for a minute. I mean, let's assume for a second that these guys are in Babylon... I'm almost positive they were. They're looking up into the sky. They see this star, quote-unquote, don't they? They saddle up the camels. They follow the star six or seven hundred miles into the nation of Israel, and apparently at some point on the way, when they're getting real close, the star disappears. Not sure that that's on the computer model. Watch for stuff like that. But they're right by Jerusalem, and Jerusalem is sort of the center of the entire nation, the center of the whole region. Everything happens there. Surely everyone in Jerusalem has seen this star that is so big, so bright, so beautiful that clearly it speaks of the king of the Jews and of his birth. And these guys had followed it the whole way. They get into Jerusalem. 
They start asking around in the streets, where is the one born king of the Jews? And here's how we know, because we have seen his star. You know the star, right? No, actually I don't. What star? Oh, how about you? Have you you seen the star? No? Anybody even heard of the star? No one. How did that happen? How can that be? I wouldn't buy that today, and we can't even see the stars. I mean, we don't follow the stars today, do we? And that day, they followed the stars everywhere they went, literally. I mean, they navigated by the stars. You have GPS, they have the stars. Those people slept out under the stars, and not just on those few rare occasions when they went camping. You've done that, haven't you? If you've done it in Florida, you woke up with mosquito bites and raccoons stealing your food. It's not as great as it sounds. They did it all the time. It's a hot, arid place. They have no air conditioning. They would sleep most nights on the roofs of their homes, very customary. And what was their view each night as they laid down on their back and looked up at the sky with no light pollution and no smog? But they didn't see the star, right? Not only that, the first century was full of people who were kind of superstitious about the stars. I mean, they really believed that the fates, that the risings and the fallings of kings and empires were forecasted in the stars. And so it wasn't like there was this odd group of people over in Babylon, and they're known of as the Magi, and they're the only people who are looking for strange occurrences in the sky. Everybody's looking. And lots of people made that their life's study. So how is it then that these guys follow this star or whatever it was all the way into the land of Israel? They go up into Jerusalem and they start talking to people in the street and nobody knows what they're talking about. No one. Doesn't make any sense. And of course it disappeared. That doesn't make any sense. And then, as you'll see, it reappears. And get this. It went on before them. That's a direct quote. What does that sound like to you? You know, when I started thinking about that, it went on before, like the star is moving and they're following it. Okay? That sounds like the Old Testament to me. That sounds like the glory of the Lord in the Old Testament, which led the Israelites around in the wilderness as a pillar of fire by night. Now, was it an actual pillar of fire? I just think that's the way they described it. It's the way it looked, kind of like I think about the star. The glory of God. So they follow the star, quote-unquote, from Jerusalem to Bethlehem. Do you know how far that is? It's five miles. How do you follow an actual star in the sky five miles? Go try that tonight. Take your phone with you. And it doesn't just take them to the town of Bethlehem. No, no, no. It takes them to a neighborhood in the town of Bethlehem, but that's not even specific enough, is it? They follow this star all the way to the house in which Jesus is residing. It says it stood above it. How does a star stand above a house? Go out into your backyard tonight if it's clear and look up and try to figure out which star is standing above your house that isn't also above your neighbor's. And for that matter, somebody in Miami. So, was it a star? I don't think so. And if you'll forgive me for a second, I don't honestly care. I don't think it matters at all. I really don't. 
I think sometimes we spend our time in life, particularly we believers, kind of answering questions that don't matter. Chasing down things that in the end are really kind of like, huh? And we miss the forest for the trees. We come, for example, to a story like the creation story of all of humanity where God comes and He fashions the man and He imprints upon the man His own image. We're created in the image of God and it speaks to the value of humanity and the dignity of humanity. And all of these things are in this story that are jumping up and down going, please, please notice me. And we're talking about whether Adam had a belly button. And it makes no sense to me. Who cares? Who cares? I think what matters about the Star of Bethlehem is that it teaches us that God comes to people who are far, far, far away from the Lord Jesus. And through some manifestation of His glory... He doesn't just bring them most of the way to Christ. He stands above the spot where the Lord is. He brings you to the feet of the King Himself. So as we continue our look at the gift and cost of Christmas today, I hope that like the Magi, man, we see the glory of that gift. Those guys saw the glory of this gift. And that we understand the cost of that gift and see the glory in that too. Believe you me, and you'll see it before we're done. They saw that. They got that. That we'll be drawn to the feet of that Jesus just like they were by His spectacular, undeniable, irresistible glory. And finding ourselves at His feet that we'll reproduce what they did. We'll fall in worship and will say in so many words, Lord, in light of who you are and what you've done, what do you want me to do? What gift do you want me to give this Christmas? What cost would you have me to pay? What genuine need of a genuinely needy person, not somebody who doesn't need anything, but somebody who really needs something, would you have me to meet? Or if I can just nuance it for this story today, what very costly journey Would you have me to go on? And not begrudgingly, not out of duty or obligation or guilt or any of those poor motivations, but in an act of worship. The story of the Magi is found in Matthew chapter 2, beginning at verse 1, where Matthew says this, he says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, so there it is, it's game on, he's been born, okay? In the days of Herod the king, who as we will see, was a delusional madman. That's important. Matthew then says something that I find very significant. He says, behold, which simply means, look. He wants you to see something. And what he wants you to see are magi. He says, look, magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem. And with that statement, because he doesn't give us any explanation about magi, he's sort of assuming that we know what the magi are. Kind of we bring to it an understanding and we're sort of impressed, you know, we get the point. And I think, at least in part, we do sort of get the point. I mean, you know, we have nativity sets. We know what the Magi look like. We've been to the Christmas pageant or we've been in Christmas plays. Some of you here today have been a Magi, haven't you? Hey, it beats beating a shepherd, doesn't it? I mean, you know, it's, 
You've been a magi. One of my all-time favorite pictures of my kids is of my little boy when he was three years old here in the Bethany Christian School pre-K-3 Christmas play that we do every year, and it is jam-packed, cars down the street, because it's so cute. There's nowhere that you can go get a dose of cute like that play. Nowhere. And he was a magi. And so he's in this picture, and he's got his royal robe wrapped around his shoulders. You hear that word, royal? It's magi. And he has his crown on. Well, who wears a crown? Magi. And it doesn't fit, so it's kind of loping forward on his head a little bit. And he's got his eyes closed and his little hands like this, and he's pretending to pray in front of the baby Jesus. It's like the greatest picture ever. When he wants a car, he's just going to come to me and show me that picture and go, can I have a car? And I'm just going to lay down and get it to him. You know, sure, whatever you want, son. Magi are regal. Magi are royal. We, at least I, grew up singing the song of the Magi. What's that? Yeah, it's we three Magi of... No. All right, sing it with me. You ready? We three kings of Orient are... Okay, stop. That's as much of my voice as you can take. (laughs) But they're kings. And you got to stop at this point in the story, because I have to do this every time, and say, okay, were there really three? I have absolutely no idea whether there were really three or not. I mean, there are three gifts, so we go with three. Were they kings? That's actually a good question. I think there's some biblical warrant to say that, yeah, maybe they were kings, but, you know, I've never met them. We haven't had lunch. They were not part of the video presentation that I watched. So I don't know that for sure, but here's what I do know, that even if they weren't kings, they lived like kings. These were very wealthy, very powerful, very, very influential, highly educated men who didn't just roll into town three dudes on three camels. No, they came with a caravan of people dressed in their royal garb, people who waited on them and cooked for them, and most importantly, who guarded them all along this treacherous trip as they crossed foreign lands and territories where they could be attacked, bearing great treasures, great wealth. The Magi are interesting guys. They were men who were well familiar with all the glory that this world has to offer, and yet who in faith were looking for a greater glory, a different star, for the star and the glory of Jesus. So Matthew says, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, it's game on, in the days of Herod the king, and he's nuts, behold, look, magi from the east with all of their pomp and circumstance and great caravan arrive in Jerusalem. This is unusual. This causes a stir, and then they open their mouths, and it just gets worse. Because they arrive in Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his glory. And I know you want to say, no, the word is star. Okay. We saw his star. His glory star in the east. And have come to worship him. But as we said earlier, nobody else has seen his star. And they don't know what king he's talking about. They, in fact, only know of one king. By the way, he bore the same title, king of the Jews. 
But it was given not by God, but rather by the Roman Senate. His name is Herod, and he is none too happy with the message of the Magi. Matthew says in verse 3, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. And this speaks of his instability because it then says, and all Jerusalem with him. Why? Because as I've said now three times, he's a delusional madman and he tolerates zero threat to his throne. And if you don't believe me, ask his family. He killed three of his own sons. Killed his favorite wife. Killed one of his mother-in-laws. He's not a kind man. And I can tell you that one born king of the Jews whose birth was at least allegedly announced in the stars, well, I think the response to that is pretty predictable, don't you? Herod sees Jesus Christ as a threat to his kingdom. And you can't rush past that in this story. And I'll tell you why. Because Jesus Christ is also a threat to my kingdom, and Jesus Christ is also a threat to your kingdom kingdom. We don't talk about that a lot, do we? I think we ought to, like the Magi, just sort of, you know, embrace that. Run with that. When you are drawn by the glory of Christ, not just most of the way to Jesus, not just, hey, I got you in the territory, no, all the way to the place where He is. When you are drawn by the glory of Christ to the feet of Christ, and you see the glory of the gift of Christmas in the face of Christ and the cost of Christmas, and the scars of Christ, in the blood of Christ. Understand this, when you receive the benefits of that life, death, burial, and resurrection, of that greatest of gifts that God gave to us on that first Christmas, you then belong to Him. It's commercial language. You're purchased. You've been bought with a price, Paul says. What's the message? You're not your own anymore. Actually, that's a quote, isn't it? but you now belong to Him. And He steps into your life and says, okay, let's collect some things up here. We're going to take your status, your reputation. We're going to take your wealth, your gifts, your resources, your abilities, this house that you own. We're going to take your family. We're going to take your relationships, your connections, all of the stuff that I've given you. Key idea. That I've given you. We're going to collect it all up. And it now belongs to me. That's a threat. Or is it? He comes and he takes our puny little dying kingdoms. And what does he do with them? He transforms them by enfolding them into his great, big, glorious, everlasting kingdom. He takes that which is small and He makes it large. He takes that which is dying and He breathes into it eternal life. He takes that which is passing away and transient and He makes it everlasting. He takes that He might give. But if what you want to do is put your arms around you, well then, you need to learn from the Magi. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, magi from the east with all of their pomp and circumstance and a great big caravan arrived in Herod's Jerusalem. That's the point, saying a message that was almost certain to cause them trouble. 
Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Herod's like, I'm the king of the Jews. They're like, no, 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 no. Born king of the Jews, for we saw his glory star in the east and have come to worship him. And let's not rush past that little statement either. Have come to worship him because, again, Herod's not the only king in the story. You remember the song? We three kings of... These guys are kings. You're like, were they three? I don't know. Were they actually kings? I really think they were, but maybe I'm wrong at the very least. They were kingly. And wow, what a difference. These guys left the security. They left the comfort. They left the benefits. They left the prosperity. They left the safety. They left the pleasures. They left everything that they had and all the glory of their families, of their businesses, of their homes, of their properties, of everything. They left it all behind to get on a camel to take a treacherous six or seven hundred mile journey to the land of a madman to then go into the streets of the madman and proclaim the birth of a rival king whose birth was announced in the stars. Wow. And you know what's awesome about that? Is they collected up some things too. They gathered up all the effort of that. They gathered up all the expense of that. They gathered up all the inconvenience of that. They gathered up all the discomfort of that. They gathered up all the time of that. You know how long this took? A couple of years. All of it. The risk. And they considered it worship. They opened their arms and handed it to the Lord. Where is he, they asked, who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star, his glory, in the east and have come to worship him. And I point that out because I think oftentimes, if we're real honest, we're a whole lot more like Herod than the Magi, aren't we? We've got our arms around our stuff. And the Magi are like, no, 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 no. Wrong posture. It's like this. It's arms out. Jesus is the singularly worthy one who is worthy of the sacrifice of our everything. And he is also, by the way, the only one who can take that which is little and bitty and puny and dying and make it great and big and glorious and everlasting. It's amazing what he can do with what you give him. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Behold, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his glory, his star in the east, and have come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him, because no one knew what he was going to do, but they all knew that he was going to do something. Gathering together all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, Herod inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. Do you hear that? Because he's rightly interpreting things here. He's going, "Uh uh-oh, Messiah has been born. And he suspects that maybe there's something in the Scripture that indicated in advance where the Messiah was going to be born. That's important if you're looking to kill him. You want to know where. And sure enough, he's right. The prophet Micah. 700 years before Jesus was born, identified the location of his birth. They said to him in Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet, and you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. How do you think that struck his ears? 
so he concocts his plan. It says, Then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. Why? Why would he do that? Well, he knows what city, at least, the Messiah lives in. And if you're going to have to kill every child in the city, you'd kind of like to know what age group you need to deal with. So then how old is he? Get the idea? If I can't find and just kill him, my plan is kill everyone, and I need to kind of know, you know, what the age range of the kids I'm going to have to kill is going to be. So he determines the child's age, and then he sends the Magi, it says, to Bethlehem, and he said to them, go and search carefully for the child. Scout out the kid for me, guys. Do my dirty work for me, and when you have found him, report to me so that I too may come and worship him, you know, with my spear. After hearing the king, the Magi went their way. And the star, now catch this, which they had seen in the east, which had disappeared, not on a computer model, reappeared. And it went on before them. So now it's moving like the pillar of fire, I, I think. But, you know, I don't have this on video. Until it, meaning the star, came and stood over the place where the child was. Why? Because the glory of Jesus doesn't lead you halfway. It leads you all the way to the feet of the Lord Himself. And when they saw the star, when the Magi saw the reappearance of this star, they thought, oh, good grief. I thought we had gotten off the hook. Now we're actually going to have to deliver our treasures. This is incredibly inconvenient. I can't believe it. No. It's like Matthew kind of collects up all the language that he can put into a little phrase to say, man, these guys were really psyched. He says, they rejoiced, but how? Exceedingly. And if you didn't get that, with great joy. They're dancing in the streets, and after coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, a peasant Mary, a peasant Joseph, a peasant Jesus, born in a stable. Nothing, people. And the kings fell to, to the ground. On their faces is the idea. It's the oriental posture of obeisance. It's face down. It's total submission. And they worshiped him. And then opening their treasures. Now, why did they bring treasures? Because you don't come to a king without treasures. You bring to him your gifts. They presented to him gifts of what? Don't miss it. Gold and frankincense and what else? Myrrh. Very, very important. Very, very significant. And by giving him these treasures, whose needs do you think they met? Does the word peasants tip you off? You know the rest of the story. You know that as soon as this story is over, there's another story that happens where the Magi leave. And so Herod's like, uh-oh, they didn't come tell me which kid it is. So now I guess I'm going to have to go execute all the kids in Bethlehem, two years old and under. And Mary and Joseph flee. And they don't just flee from Bethlehem. They flee all the way to Egypt not a small journey, where they live until Herod dies and then come back. How did they fund that? They presented to him gifts. They opened to him their treasures of gold, of frankincense, and of myrrh. 
And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way, and then they rode six or seven hundred miles by camel all the way home. I think the question isn't, you know, what's the star? I mean, what was it? Was it a star and a planet? Or was it Jupiter and Venus? And You know, I don't know. I think the question is, why in the world were they looking in the first place? And when they saw whatever it is that they saw, why in the world did they interpret it the way that they did? Rightly, by the way, interpreted it the way that they did. Why are Gentile kings way, way, way off in the east, I think, in Babylon, looking up in the sky for the stars to announce the birth of a Jewish king? See, that's why I do think they were in Babylon, because the Jews had been taken into exile in Babylon. Think about the stories of Daniel, for example. There were worshiping communities of Jews that existed even in this day in Babylon. And these men clearly knew the book of Isaiah. And they saw in these prophecies themselves. That's why they were looking. Listen to what Isaiah says, 750 years before Jesus is born. He says, arise, shine, for your light has come, and the star, no, actually, but I bet it looked like one. He says, the glory. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness will cover the earth, and deep darkness the peoples, but the Lord will rise upon you, and His glory will appear upon you, and nations, meaning Gentile nations. Guys like these guys will come to your light, will follow your star, and what? And kings. We three kings of Orient are. That's where this comes from. That's why we call them kings. And kings to the brightness of your rising. They had faith in the Messiah of Israel, and they were watching, and they were looking, and they were waiting for His great glory to break upon the skies. And when they saw it, they knew what it was. They knew what it announced. They knew that the gift of Christmas had come, and they quickly got on their donkeys, gathered up their buds, and hit the road. But they also understood the cost of Christmas. What's the rest of the song? We, three kings of Orient, are. What's next? Bearing gifts, we traverse afar. The gifts tell us that they knew the cost of Christmas. What are the gifts? They're gold, they're frankincense, they're myrrh. You're like, why did they bring those gifts? Well, because Isaiah told them to three verses later. Second part of verse 6, and of Isaiah 60, it says, they, meaning these men, will bring gold and frankincense and will bear good news of the praises of the Lord. But it's incomplete. It's an incomplete list. They also brought myrrh. Yes, they did. What is myrrh? It's a burial spice. It was used to embalm people. Why in the world would you bring a gift of burial spice, of death, to an infant king whose life had just begun? You wouldn't, unless before you got to chapter 60 of Isaiah, you meditated and rightly understood Isaiah 53, where 750 years before the birth of Christ, Isaiah speaks directly to the cost of Christmas. When he says this, he says, surely our griefs he himself bore. Do you hear that? It's substitutionary. He's bearing the griefs of another. Of who? Of his people. 
of them, of me, of you, if you put your faith in Him. Surely our griefs He Himself bore, and our sorrows He carried, and yet we ourselves esteemed Him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening, the punishment for our well-being fell upon Him, and by His scourgings we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. No truer statement has been said than that. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity, the sin of us all, to fall on him. They brought myrrh because they understood that he was a king who was born ultimately to give his life as a sacrifice for the sins of his people. They got it. They understood the gift. They understood the cost. So what's the bottom line? The bottom line is that the Magi did exactly what we've been talking about for three weeks now and today makes four. They understood that when you are drawn by the glory of Christ to the feet of Christ and you truly behold the glory of the gift and cost and you receive all of the benefits of that by faith, that you belong to Him, that you come to Him not with your arms wrapped tightly around all of the dying things in your life, but you come to Him instead with your arms wide open with all of these dying things and asking Him to give life to them as well. And He does that for His glory. They stood in light of the gift and cost of Christmas and they said, okay, Lord, what gift do you want me to give? What's the cost to me that that I can pay? And what genuine need of a needy person can I meet like the needs that you've met for me? Or to nuance it for this story, what journey of a lifetime do you want me to go on? Not begrudgingly, not resentfully, not out of duty, not out of guilt, not out of manipulation, not out of emotionalism, but sincerely and as an act of worship. And this whole story really is just the story of their obedience to God's answer to that question. So the bottom line is what's my story going to be? And what will yours be?